Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about something that I find really important in all aspects of dog training. I find this important when we're talking about training sport dogs, but I find it equally important when we are talking about behavior modification for serious issues like maybe aggression or reactivity. And so what this thing is, is just choosing our reinforcers intelligently but also knowing how to respond if the choice reinforcer isn't working out for us. So I've talked at length on the podcast before about choosing the right reinforcer for the job, about paying attention to the behaviors in front of you, and that will tell you if this is the right reinforcer for the job. I've even given suggestions as far as which reinforcers are likely to work and when. So... I want to talk, though, about dogs that just care a lot about any of the reinforcers that we might be using. Let's be honest here. Dogs that care the most about the acquisition of reinforcement are the most fun to train. They're the ones that we like for sports, okay? The dog that would live and die by the tug toy is a really fun, exciting dog to train. A dog that gets super amped about food is also really fun and exciting to train. And of course, that's me talking as a dog sport enthusiast and a training junkie. If I were training service dogs, I would be singing a different song (laughs) right now. I like high power, high performance, fast moving, Um, types of dogs. That's what I like to train. And so, of course, the dogs that care the most about their reinforcers are the dogs that I like to train best. And by and large, in the sport community, that is true. Sport dog trainers tend to seek dogs, whether intentionally or not, who have really big feelings about their reinforcers. And that's fine. I think that's great. What isn't always great is the failure of the same people to pay attention to what they're creating uh, behavior-wise, but also emotions-wise when it comes to those reinforcers. So these dogs that care the most about reinforcement are the ones that we select to train for dog sports. And you might be listening and you might have a dog that cares really deeply about reinforcement, but... These dogs are also the dogs that need you to be very careful about the feelings that are attached to the reinforcement because those feelings are going to get attached to the behaviors that you're training and therefore all of those behaviors that come with those feelings are going to get attached to what you're training. And 
you know, this has this works for us in a lot of different ways. So this works for us when we choose to use a thrown toy to produce drive ahead and away from the handler. It works for us when we choose to use, you know, very slow methodical treat delivery to get slow methodical behavior. But it works against us just as often if we're not paying attention. So as I've said a million times, you know, maybe training with those high arousal toys is or reinforcers, whatever it is, might not be best practices for the dog in front of you. It's always something to think about. Don't just lean for a default. But today I want to give some actionable steps as far as, you know, I don't love the advice of just don't use that thing, right? It's sometimes really good advice. Just don't use that thing can be sometimes great advice. Use that thing smarter and here's how is better advice. So when I've got a dog for whom the reinforcer of choice is producing some behaviors that I don't like and those behaviors are getting attached to what I'm doing, that, that is where the problems lie. So let's say I'm using a toy to reinforce healing and I start to get really stocky, predatory looking healing when what I want is heads up, prancy healing. The obvious choice there is to switch to food. Build that behavior up, proof that behavior, and then layer in those higher arousal reinforcers if you still want to, but insist on the criteria that you trained with the food. But how to not get yourself in this issue in the first place, in this problem in the first place, is going to look like this. First of all, I want you to create a hierarchy in your mind of reinforcement. And the hierarchy doesn't necessarily go from you know, best to worst or anything like that. The hierarchy is just, you know, this one creates really big feelings and this one creates less feelings or whatever the picture is for your dog. I like to, generally speaking, think of my hierarchy in terms of good, great, and wow. (laughs) Um, And I, generally speaking, am always training with good reinforcers unless I need something bigger than that for a reason. So good reinforcers are good. The dog likes them. The dog's happy to work for them. Good reinforcers are not yucky. And a lot of people make this mistake. They think when I say hierarchy that you're going to be training with something stupid the dog doesn't like. You're not going to be doing that. You're going to be using things the dog likes and will work for. In order for them to be reinforcers, they need to be appetitive, which means the dog will work to get them. So if the dog hates banana chips, you're not using banana chips. If the dog likes kibble, works for kibble, uh, gives you high quality behavior for kibble, then maybe kibble is your good treat. So if we're talking in terms of maybe my dog Felix, um, his good, great, and wow when it comes to food is going to be good is kibble. Um, Great is going to be... You know, this is kind of interesting. He likes big chunks of things. So great is going to be something that is bigger, but also probably a processed meant for dogs thing. So chunks of uh, beef lung are really good for uh, for him. Big chunks of freeze dried raw. Those are going to be in the great category, whereas those same things but smaller would still be in the good category with kibble. 
And then a wow food reinforcer is going to be food that was probably intended for human consumption. So chunks of chicken or steak or salmon or something like that is going to be a wow reinforcer for Felix. When it comes to toys, this gets a little bit harder because he loves toys. But basically, um, a good reinforcer is probably going to be like a braided fleece type of toy or maybe even like a stuffed animal that doesn't have a squeak in it. And a great reinforcer is going to be like a riot stick type tug or an udder type tug um, or, a, you know, any of the kind of bite sport French linen types of tugs that he does really like. But that That's going to be in my great category. And then wow is going to be all manner of ball on rope, preferably a rubber ball that he can bite really hard. And when I have this hierarchy, then I know that those wow reinforcers are probably not going to help me if I'm trying to maintain kind of a steady, level-headed response. But they are going to help me if I'm trying to pack a really big punch. So I may surprise him with one of those. A really good example is that if I call him out of a tough situation, it's a tough recall, I want to give him a wow reinforcer for that. But it's usually not something that I'm using rep repeated, like I'm not doing several reps, several loops of a behavior for my wow reinforcers. I'm probably using my good reinforcers for that unless, you know, maybe I'm working in a super tough environment and I'm going to use my great reinforcers. But let's get into that. You're going to want to watch your behaviors to let you know what it is that you want to be using. And if the dog is not making any errors, you're probably using the right one. Okay, so let me say that again. If nothing is going wrong, your training session's going great, dog is staying in the loop, they're taking reinforcement, they're coming back for the next repetition, you're probably using the right one. Don't change anything. And of course, there's more than just reinforcement that you need to look at if things are going wrong. But this episode is about reinforcement. So if the dog is making errors of anticipation, so that might be the dog is breaking a stay. Um, that might be the dog is curling in front of me and healing. That might be the dog is popping out of the end of the weave poles. It might be they're blowing through a contact zone, something like that. That's an error of anticipation. It's a skipping ahead to the good part error. Then I'm going to use, I'm going to go down in my hierarchy. So I'm going to go down that list to a um, less valuable reinforcer for my dog. And let me say again, it still needs to be valuable. It still needs to be something the dog wants. But if I'm getting errors of attention, the dog's attention is split away from me. He's looking at the environment. Uh, maybe he wasn't watching me and that's why he missed my down signal. Uh, maybe he is sniffing as he heads for the weave poles. Maybe he is, you know, looking away during healing. If a dog is making um, attention errors, or it may just be that they look away briefly as they return to me in a loop, then I'm going to go up in my reinforcement. And let me be very clear. I'm not going to do it right then. 
I'm not gonna do either right then. I'm not gonna switch my reinforcement right then mid-flow. I am always, always going to take a break, have a think, consider what's going on, and then potentially come back with a different reinforcement. Why? Because I don't want to accidentally reinforce the error by producing a better reinforcer. So I'm always going to take a break before I switch. If I'm being a really good trainer, I've already planned out my session. I've planned exactly what I want to do and what reinforcer I want to use. And if things are not going well, I'm going to stop, reconsider what needs to change. Is it the antecedents that need to change? Is it my setup that needs to change? Or do I need to change the reinforcer? Am I having errors of anticipation or attention? In which case... I may change my reinforcer. So when I go back into the training, I'm gonna use something else. I also think it's very important to avoid desperation. So this can happen in your warm up, but it can also happen in the day leading up to the training session and also the, the days before the training session. In order to avoid these errors of anticipation, and largely I'm talking about big feelings dogs. I'm not talking about dogs that you need to use bigger reinforcers for. I'm usually talking here about dogs who you might need to lower the excitement and intensity of the reinforcers. So I want you to avoid desperation. That means that if your dog is a super hungry, super chompy, you're, you're laughing at the idea that food has a hierarchy kind of dog, give them a meal before you train. Feed them. Break that kind of rule of training a dog that's on an empty stomach. Feed them before you train. Do some really, really easy, quick reps of something for which they get the reinforcer um, again, 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 without having to work too hard before you start. So you've kind of satiated that desire a little bit. You might even play with a toy before you go into your session. If it is, um, a toy reinforcer that you're going to use, kind of scratch that itch a little bit for the dog, satisfy them a little bit, have them, um, have some of their play needs met before you begin. And then in a general sense, don't deprive them. Make sure that they're being trained frequently. Make sure that they are being provided social opportunities. Uh, make sure that they are they have toys that are available to them in their life, that they play with you all the time. You know, kind of make sure that they're not in an active state of desperation in general. So again, to kind of avoid the iconic, as Lindsay Wood Brown said on Hannah Brannigan's podcast, ball feelings issue... You want to look at these three actionable steps. The first one is create a hierarchy of your reinforcers. The second one is watch your behaviors. If you've got anticipatory errors, lower that, go down that hierarchy. Attention errors go up in the hierarchy. And avoid desperation as a general rule all the time. And of course, let me know how it's going. Okay, and just a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Elise, who writes... Could you share some tips for teaching a dog not to make contact with us by accident or on purpose? Our Border Collies are naturally conscientious of not ramming us or dogs or things, but our Australian cattle dogs and Malinois don't care. In fact, they enjoy it. <laughs> Considering their breeds, I'm not surprised. Aside from creating a consequence after the fact, what can be done proactively to teach a dog that it should be conscientious of you and not ramming you or dogs? 
I praise and reward when they stay clear of my legs, body, face, and other dogs. I have done a few shaping sessions where the goal is moving around me without touching me. Any other thoughts? So Elise, you hit the nail on the head. You just said, this is a breed tendency, right? So border collies, one of the things that I actually love about them is that they don't run into each other, generally speaking, um, and they don't run into me. I have chronic pain and dogs that run into me or jump all over me or kind of pummel me are a huge problem for me. Um, and I also really can't tolerate dogs running into or rolling um, other dogs during play or on walks. It makes me insane. Cattle dogs, mouths, Aussies, um, Labradors, Pitties, a lot of breeds are really physical in their interactions. And because this is a natural, normal breed trait for them, I think number one, we need to be aware of the breeds that we choose to live with. One of the reasons Border Collies are the right breed for me is how not physical they are with me. Um, I think there are a lot of breeds who are really cool and really interesting, but they are going to hurt me <laughs> if I have them, and so I don't have them. My Icelandic Sheepdog is a little bit more into running into me and stuff, but she's so tiny that it's not that big of a deal. If she were three times her size, it would be a problem. So you can create a consequence after the fact, but even more than that, I would actually produce consequences that happen during precursor types of behaviors. Catch the dirty thought, not the dirty behavior. So if the dog is on its way to you and has no intention of slowing down, step into their space, ask them to back up, ask them to lie down, ask them to do a nose target, move in and redirect them to make a different choice. I am also not above um, a consequence after the fact. I certainly have. Um, I actually, with a lot of young dogs, will um, very deliberately put them on kind of a leash timeout if they run into other dogs on walks. It's one of the few punishment procedures that I actually utilize on a regular basis with young dogs. Um, the time that Watson ran into Iggy on the trail, Iggy has... Um, disc disease, she's older, like that really can't be happening. Um, you know, I had some words with him that I'm not recommending. You have words that are quite that strong, but I was pretty mad. And honestly, telling them no, telling them that's not going to be fine and you're going to go on a leash now, like I'm not above this. This is the kind of trainer that I am in real life is like, if you do something that cannot continue, I am going to take away your fun. And hopefully that, that, hopefully that hits home for you. Um, but more than that, I then started to throw food off the trail for Watson. I would tell him away and I would throw food off the trail. And now when I say away, as he's heading towards Iggy, he can kind of move around her, go off the trail. Uh, I will do a lot of body blocking. So kind of a la Dr. Patricia McConnell is who I learned that from so many years ago. Is just kind of stepping into the dog's space and continuing to do so until they yield to your kind of spatial pressure that you're putting on them. I am not a huge fan of like big physical responses, big physical corrections or anything like that from you because I think that just invites them to be more physical back with you. But teaching them to back up, do a nose target, be smart, engage their brain, engage their um, their ability to respond to cues. When you see them being crazy and thinking about doing that is probably... Um, the best way to go and it, and like you said if you see that see them actually steering clear of you or another dog reinforcing that behavior is always really smart
Next one is from Lena who writes, what are your thoughts around fear of strangers? Do you let the dog sniff people out that totally ignores him or maybe wear a muzzle for safety? Or do you let the dog process on a, at a distance? Do you think we can get the dog to overcome his fear? And what is your best tips for letting strangers come visit with a fearful dog? My dog is okay after some time when I give visitors instructions to ignore him, but I'm afraid to let him sniff and be close to them if he suddenly will find himself in a too tight situation. So overall, Lena, number one, I do not force or or even facilitate dogs being close to people that they're afraid of. Fear is not something to work through. Okay, fear is something to help heal. It will not heal in tight spaces where the dog is still not sure. I don't like having people intentionally interact with fearful dogs. I do think you're fine, you know, having people over who are good about ignoring your dog. So if they, if they follow those instructions to ignore your dog um, and he wants to be curious and approach, I do think that can be really healthy, but a basket muzzle would help you to relax about that situation. Um, and if the dog, you know, kind of can't be trusted to get to not get too close and then kind of freak out, which I totally know what you're talking about. They, they think they can approach, they think they're being brave enough and then, ooh, they panic and kind of have an outburst. You do want to avoid that. So a muzzle would be really helpful in that situation. But also if they're the kind of dog that's going to do that, I would facilitate distance. I would say you can, you can sniff from across the room on a leash. You can sniff from across the room behind an X-Pen. In general, um, and I talk about this a lot on the podcast. It's the same as everything else I do. I don't try to counter condition. I don't try to tell the dog to do something else. I help the dog feel better through exposure therapy. The dog says, hey, I want to be away from this person. I facilitate that escape every single time. If the dog says I'm curious and I'd like to approach, then I'm going to facilitate that too, but I'm going to make sure I keep everybody safe. So it's facilitating what the dog is asking for and making sure that you don't put them in situations that they can't handle. Um, is kind of the short answer to your question. And last one for this week comes from uh, Milin. I hope that I'm saying your name correctly, Milin. I have a question related to recall training for my dog. He's an almost 11-month-old intact Yorkie, super friendly with human and dogs of all size. However, I've been struggling to make him come back to me at the dog park for the last few months since he hits puberty. Oh, yeah. Uh, he used to have a great recall at the park at first, and now he really doesn't care when we're there. I do take him out to walk in big parks on trails on the long line and practice recalling there, to which he responds very well. However, he will also run away as fast as he can if I want to take him back um, at the dog park, even if there are no dogs there. I tried to make it a no-choice moment, but it's quite embarrassing and tiring to run after your dog whenever you want to put them back on a leash. I know that another option is to not take him to the park at all until he responds to me calling him back, but I'm afraid that he would always know that he can just run and I will just have to chase him at the park. And unfortunately, he really likes being chased even when we play at home. And of course, another option is never take him to the dog park again, but that's really not how I want this to end because we don't have other dogs at home for him to play with and he really, truly enjoys the park. And most of the time, the dogs at the park where I live are very friendly and well-behaved. Okay, number one, make sure you go listen to the recall episode because you have to make sure you have a nice, solid training plan for the recall and that does not mean practicing. Because practicing and doing lots of recalls isn't how you get a good recall. And um, training, kind of active, systematic training and being clever about your training is how you get a good recall. Calling your dog at the dog park is a no-go right now. I, you have to stop calling him. 
which means that you have to figure out how the dog park's gonna work for you if you cannot call him. Because what it sounds like is you call him and if he actually does come, that's a miracle and then you take him home because you know it's not gonna happen again. Um, or you chase him down, which is not a good option for anybody involved. Um, and you don't actually have the ability to make it a no choice moment because you have no control over the dog. The dog is free. If this were my dog, he wouldn't be in the dog park anymore until he could come to me when he was called. And I'd be doing that in a really controlled manner. Like he's playing with my friend's dog in a separate area. And I know that my friend's dog has a great recall. So my friend can make their dog end the play essentially for my dog if my dog doesn't recall. So it looks like this when I have a puppy. They're playing with my adult dogs and I call them and they're like, eh, I'd rather keep playing. And then I tell my adult dogs to lie down and stay. And they do and it removes the fun and they go, oh, well that's a bummer. They come to me, I reward them and I send them back to the play. And we do this until they just recall out of the play. When they recall out of the play, I send them quickly right back into the play. So those kinds of things, it does require the trained adult dog. Teaching him to come and put his leash on and teaching him that that does not end the play for him would be a separate skill that I'd be teaching. Uh, this episode may not come out before registration closes, but I did let Milin know over in Patreon that my Teenage Tyrants course is running and it has some more detailed training plans for things like this because they're so, so common for dogs at this age to start doing. Best of luck to you, Milin. Hey everybody, hang out one second. I wanna tell you about the brand new Cog Dog Classroom. This is a place where I'm going to be offering self-study courses for things like crate training, wellness, reactivity, puppies, and more. Right now we've got Happy Crating up there. It's a webinar that you can buy and watch anytime to help you with your crate training. And I've also got my Four Steps to Behavioral Wellness course, which is a brand new imagining of the Four Steps concept. It comes with a video lecture from me as well as a bunch of written content. So I hope that you'll go check out Cog Dog Classroom. You know the link is in the show notes.